0: Okay, good morning. For those of you that may be visiting or not know who I am, my name's Russ. I'm one of the elders here at Ephesus Church, and I'm going to be preaching for you today in Pastor Nick's absence. So I would ask you to go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, um, chapter 5. But we're going to be spending a lot, some time in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 so the plan is for this to be part one, and Lord willing, uh, next week will be part two. So before we get to chapter five, we're gonna, I really felt the need to set some context for this book. I felt the need to set the context for what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter five. Now, Matthew chapter five is a very popular uh, chapter, a lot of times referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. So you may be familiar with it. But I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 5, verses 1 through uh, 16 today. And then next week, we may expand it out to verse 20. We'll see how the Holy Spirit guides. But let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So most everyone is familiar with these, again, with these verses, especially about the salt and light. Everybody, how many knows the little children's song about salt and light? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Oh, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. My wife is horrified right now (laughs) that I just tried to sing. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. The next verse says, everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine. Next verse, all in my house, I'm going to let it shine. Oh, all in my house, I'm going to let it shine. I'm not going to make it shine. I'm just going to let it shine. And lastly, out in the dark, I'm going to let it shine. What a great verse for our kids. What a great song for our kids to sing. You know, these, these children's songs can, can carry the spectrum of really bad theology to very good theology. And this one, in my opinion, is simple, but it's good theology. So let's talk about Matthew for a minute. I'm super excited To talk about the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is one of the most quoted books among the early church in the second century. This is where Christians went, especially in the early early church, to show that Jesus is Messiah, Mashiach, which means the anointed one. It can be said that the central theme of Matthew's gospel is, in one word, is fulfillment. So We'll look at it again, but the opening opening genealogy of Matthew is there to portray the coming of the Jewish Messiah as the climax of the history of God's people. And the remainder of the next few chapters, really the whole book, points our attention to a wide variety of aspects of the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. In Matthew, there's 44 direct citations of the Old Testament and another 262 allusions and verbal parallels of the Old Testament. That's a very conservative figure based on the most widely recognized allusions. So there's probably even more references to the Old Testament in Matthew. Now, an allusion is an expression designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly, So remember that, what an illusion is. So without direct quotations or illusions, there's many other parts of Matthew that are designed to remind us of Old Testament people and Old Testament events or institutions. And these all point us to the cohesive unity of the entire Bible. And that main theme being the coming of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now it's my... my, Understanding that if you don't understand or you don't know where and when he's referring to the Old Testament, you're going to have a real hard time understanding what Matthew's talking about. So we are not people of the New Testament only, but we follow, we have to remember, we follow a Jewish Messiah. And the New Covenant is a fulfillment of all the promises that came before it. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, which says... For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So in Jesus, we find all the promises of God contained in one word, yes. Everything in your Bible ultimately points to Jesus. Even the Old, even the Old Testament stories are about Jesus and point to him. So Matthew pulls from the Old Testament in ways that the other synoptic Gospels don't. If you don't know, that word synoptic just means summary or synopsis. And usually we refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic Gospels. John is comparatively different or distinct. He takes a little different angle. But if you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell a lot of the similar stories um, as each other. So one main Old Testament theme is that Jesus is the long-awaited king and he brought his kingdom as planned from eternity past. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, another uh, section of scripture that we're all probably familiar with. All Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the always to the end of the age. So Jesus has a plan. God has a plan. And at its center is the King of the nations. Jesus fulfilled everything expected of the Messiah. Matthew goes into great length, picking up on Jewish thought to show that the kingdom And the Messiah has arrived. But back to the genealogy for a second in Matthew 1. Matthew starts right off the bat, and he shows us that Jesus is David's greater son. And he has, through adoption by Joseph, the genealogical right to the royal throne. He has the family right to the royal throne of David, but without a sinful nature. You see what God did there? He did something really cool. He gave, Jesus has the genealogical right through adoption by Joseph, but through Mary also, he is the son of David without the sinful nature. So he's the son of Joseph, and therefore he's the son of David and Abraham by adoption. See, the Jews knew Messiah had to be a son of David. They knew their Bibles. And if, if it was anything else, they would know right off the bat, no, there's no way This Jesus is the Messiah. So let me give you some specific examples of allusions back to the Old Testament. First two words of Matthew are literally, in your Bibles it says the book of the genealogy, but literally translated it's the book of Genesis or the book of origins of Jesus Christ. Signaling the theme of fulfillment in his very first words of Matthew, he's saying, I'm telling you about what was what was prophesied in the Old Testament. So the effect on the Jewish reader of reading this is similar when they read John one in the beginning was the word. They're going to remember Genesis one in the beginning God created. So here he does the same thing. It says in the beginning, in the origin, this is the book of the beginning of Jesus. This is an example of one of the allusions I referred to earlier. Matthew is suggesting here that a new creation is happening. Genesis 1 1 tells us about creation. He's telling us there's a new creation coming. So right after the genealogy in Matthew 1 23, this is, this is big. In Matthew 1 23, he quotes Isaiah 7.14. He's telling us something. He's telling his Jewish readers something. Isaiah 7.14 said, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So Isaiah, which is probably the most messianic book in the entire Old Testament. Um, this is, uh, I, Isaiah, probably the most messianic book in the Old Testament, tells us that a virgin shall conceive and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So, this was probably pretty interesting to Joseph as he was just about to give his wife a divorce or send her away when the angel says "No, so she is you know pregnant with the Messiah, so I'm sure he was a little excited about this and was undergoing some emotional whiplash, but he stayed with Mary and eventually will marry her so i so Matthew harkens us back to Isaiah chapter seven, telling us that A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So, why stick it in there? Well, we'll talk about that more. So, Matthew 2, going on to Matthew 2, we see here that God is even controlling the stars to do his bidding. And who does he bid come to Jesus? Well, he directs pagan wise men to see him. These are pagan men, not even monotheistic, probably polytheistic men who come to do what? Worship the king. God is widening his kingdom, even right here in Matthew 2, outside of the Jewish nation. Matthew 2.15, Herod, we read, goes after the male children in Bethlehem. And later we find out that Mary and Joseph take Jesus and they flee to Egypt. And what Matthew shows us in verse 2.15, that This is the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. We're going to talk about a lot of scriptures. I meant to say this at the beginning. Write them down, please. I'm not going to be able to read them all. Write down these scriptures. Go back, look at them, compare them to Matthew. Hosea 11.1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. See what Matthew's telling us? See what he was telling his early Jewish readers? The story, this story, the killing of the young Hebrew boys... In Matthew 2.15, it should sound real familiar to us if we know the Old Testament. It's like the story of Moses, right? Jesus is the true and better Moses, the true and better deliverer of his people. So when God was weaving the historical events of Moses' life as part of that, he was foretelling that Jesus is the ultimate culmination of history. So the, this exodus of the Jews, which is what Hosea was referring to, was leading to the formation of a new people of God and was a symbol, even in the Old Testament, of an even greater work of deliverance, which God was going to accomplish in the future. And Matthew, by quoting directly from Hosea 11.1, 1, has applied it to the new exodus, which has come about through Jesus. Next is Matthew 3 we get a very important figure in the Bible, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, you know, kind of his wild, crazy cousin who lived out in the desert. You know, he ate, he ate bugs. He dipped them in honey. He ate camel, he wore, he didn't eat it. He wore camel hair. He, you know, he was, he was, he was kind of wild guy. And he called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. This is not a good thing. Did any of you see that video on the internet a few weeks ago? It was somebody had like dropped their GoPro into a big nest of rattlesnakes. And just watching it made your skin kinda crawl. And it was just really weird. And I, I think of that when I think of this brood of vipers. He's telling the the religious leaders, the people who are respected religious leaders, that they make they make his skin crawl. Their insides are dirty. And they probably would not have liked that very much, I don't think. But he primarily came calling people to repentance. To return, he was calling the Jewish people to return to their true allegiance, back to God. This is basically a call to be converted. Now this is very important, Matthew 3, 2. You can uh, turn over a little bit so you can see it with your own eyes. Matthew 3, 2 we have John the Baptist, and he's calling people to repentance. But not only that, he tells them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at your fingertips. Some translate this to say, has arrived. He's telling the people God is at hand. He's close. He's nearby. R.T. France, in his commentary, i want to read a couple of paragraphs from his commentary. It's very important. Please, please listen. He says, I quote, Matthew's phrase, the kingdom of heaven, literally is functionally the same as the kingdom of God in Mark and Luke and frequently occurs in direct parallel to it. The phrase, the kingdom of God in both its Hebrew and Greek forms denotes the dynamic concept of, this is important, God ruling Matthew's summary of John's and Jesus' declaration, which we'll see in a minute, the kingdom of heaven has arrived, might be thus paraphrased as, quote, God's promised reign is beginning, or God is now taking control. Jesus' choice of the phrase the kingship of God to sum up his message would have evoked a deep rooted longing. I want to say that again. A deep rooted longing probably for hundreds of years, a deep-rooted longing for this ultimate assertion of God's sovereignty over all who oppose his will. Still quoting, Mark's description of Joseph of Arimathea was one who was, Mark 15.43, write it down, Mark 15.43 said that Joseph of Arimathea is one who was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of kingship of God. Mark 15:43. And this is probably the typical mainstream Jewish piety at this time. Again, still quoting, but John and Jesus do not simply echo this hope of God's rule coming soon. It has already arrived, literally. It has come near. The perfect tense suggests something actual. That which has completed the process of coming near is already present. Not simply still on the way. The time of God's effective sovereignty has arrived, and now is the time for decisive action in response. End quote. I think about this, and I think about the in my mind the clearest example when Jesus Himself spoke about the kingdom. He said in Matthew twelve, twenty-eight, the religious leaders had accused him of casting out demons by the power of the devil, but he says But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it's a logical statement, right? So did Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God? I say yes. Then Jesus says the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's on you. So remember, his kingdom means his rule. It means his reign. This is a constant theme in the Old Testament. Remember, we're talking... We're connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's rule, God's sovereignty from Genesis to Malachi, we understand that at this church, that God is sovereign over all things. Now, the Jewish believer, while believing that God was eternally sovereign, still had a sense that all was not as God would have it in the world. And he hoped of a time to come when God's rule would be more fully and openly implemented and acknowledged among the people of earth. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Okay, next we come to Matthew 4, another huge chapter. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He fulfills there what Israel, and really Adam, but what specifically Israel failed to do. His time in the wilderness was markedly different from the Jews' time in the wilderness. The devil tempts Jesus, right? And what is he, what is, first of all, I want to note, this is not really too germane to the sermon, but I want to point this out. What the devil, the devil tempts Jesus. And what does Jesus use to defend himself? Well, his ultimate standard and authority, his very word. This is what we should use as well. We would be wise not to think of ourselves as stronger or more able to fight off the devil in our own strength than Jesus was. If he used God's word to fight off ultimate temptation, how much more should we use it to fight temptation in our lives? Know God's word. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Let it dwell richly in your heart. Okay, but in Matthew chapter 4, here Jesus is tempted a third time in verses 8 through 10 by the devil but this time, he's tempted with the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So, this is paramount. This is kind of the same as the devil saying, Jesus, I'm going to make you king of kings. He's going to give him universal dominion over all the peoples of the earth. How tempting was this for Jesus? Why did the devil tempt him with this? Well, First of all, the devil is offering Jesus the ultimate shortcut here. No scourging, no walking around everywhere for three years on dirty roads, teaching people who, some of which, will abandon him and walk away. No mockery, no beating, no suffering, no cross, and no death. He's offering him the ultimate shortcut. He's giving Jesus a way out. But friends, we need to remember that Jesus did not abandon us in our sin. He did not forget us. He was compelled to go to the cross because of his love and desire to obey his Father. And because of his love for us, what a Savior we have. Amen? Okay, so we've got to ask ourselves, though, why would Satan offer this? Because that's what Jesus came for, right? Right? All the nations, Isaiah 2, 2 through 3. We're going to Isaiah now. Have your fingers in Isaiah. Go ahead. I meant to say that earlier too. Have your fingers in Isaiah. The devil knows Isaiah 2, 2 through 3. And here's what that says. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Remember remember Peter in Acts 2 quoting the prophet Joel who said in the last days, and he's referring to Jesus' coming. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go the law, the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Also Micah 4.1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, flow up to it. The devil knows the Bible, and he knew what to tempt Jesus with. So in Matthew 4.15, he quotes Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. And this says, well, let me, let me, read, let me read the first. We'll just we'll keep going. Matthew 4.15 quotes Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. Here's Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. Turn to it if you can. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked, here we go, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them, a light has shone. So you see what Matthew is doing? Look, look at this. Think, think real carefully about this. The theme of light and darkness goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, right? Remember Genesis 1? God brings light that scatters darkness. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So darkness is now being scattered by light. God brought the light. This is what God does, this is what He wants to do. Look a few verses later on in Isaiah 9 tells us God Himself is the one coming down to bring His kingdom and scatter darkness few verses later, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, you know these verses. These are our Christmas card verses, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here we see Isaiah describing Joseph and Mary's son not only as Messiah, but as the mighty God, as the father of eternity, as the one who will come, scatter darkness, bring a great light. But wait, there's more story of this child is picked up again in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Why is, the geneal- why is the genealogy there? It's got to be there. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. So, these last two passages would certainly have been recognized by Matthew's Jewish readers, and we should recognize them today as a continued theme of the fuller expression of the messianic prophecies fulfilled in Jesus at the time of his incarnation. So, you see how Matthew is weaving together, he's putting together the pieces of the puzzle. According to Isaiah 9, when the great light comes, and let me remind you, John eight twelve says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. First John 1, 5 declares that God is light and in him there is no darkness. So Isaiah 9, when the great light comes, he will establish his kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jews would have immediately remembered Isaiah 9 when they read this, and so should we. We have to understand the Old Testament in order to understand the New. So this is what Jesus came to do. This is the story of the Bible. From Genesis 1, God from the beginning is making light. He's scattering darkness. And since the fall, his plan has been for his son to crush the head of Satan and return to God's good creation, to bring his great light and establish his kingdom, which the government thereof will increase, and he will bring Shalom, peace with no end. Jesus is concerned with the salvation of the world, not just our individual salvations. He is concerned about that, of course, but his gospel, according to John and according to his very words, is the gospel of the kingdom. He is concerned with his rule on earth, he is king over his kingdom. So therefore he is concerned about his kingdom's existence on earth. This is why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we believe this when we pray this? Did Jesus mean for the answer to that to be yes? I think so. So Jesus has come to bring salvation, to bring his elect into communion with the living God, and then to establish and grow his kingdom. Now we see in 4.23, Jesus went through all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And as we have seen, the Greek word here translated kingdom may better be understood to mean God's rule. That is what a kingdom is, is Jesus' rule on earth. So finally, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, or R.T. France calls it the discourse on discipleship. This is what disciples should do. This is what disciples should look like. So the focus on chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew is not really about the proclamation of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom, but it's an instruction to those of us who have already received this gospel, who've already believed the gospel, and we've already responded to it. And now we need to know what is life in the kingdom of heaven all about? What, what, What do we do now? You know, God doesn't just save us and leave us. He tells us what to do next. So Jesus in, this, in the first um, part of the Sermon on the Mount here that I read earlier is declaring divine, really, I don't think there's a good word for when he says blessed in the English language. I think a real good way of describing it is divine happiness, um, God's happiness. God's joy to people who are blessed by Him. Jesus is teaching here. Uh, his teaching here describes a group of people who stand against, even to persecution, the culture around them, and they've entered a new relationship with their Father in Heaven. And who, because of this new relationship, are called to a radically new lifestyle, distinct from the normal life of their surrounding culture. They and we are really called to be counter. Christian counterculture, countercultural Christians, countercultural people, so to speak. We're supposed to live according to our king and our kingdom. So in verse 3 in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about the poor in spirit. and He says they inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I, I, I would say those who, the poor in spirit are those who gladly accept God's rule um, and enjoy the benefits that come to his subjects. There's too many benefits, really, for me to list, but some would be faith, repentance, redemption, forgiveness of sins, mercy, God's righteousness, and all the other blessings that come from being in communion with God. Those are the poor in spirit. Verse 5 talks about the meek. And here, Jesus is borrowing or taking from Psalm 37. As those who wait for the Lord... Instead of worrying and plotting to get their revenge over their right and wrongs, they wait on the Lord. Now, Psalm 37 says the meek will inherit the land. But Jesus enlarges this now. He doesn't say land. He says the meek will inherit the earth. And how much better do we have it now? Jesus has changed it from land to earth. He can change the Bible. Nobody else can do it. Jesus changed it. Now, this is consistent with what we have been seeing, that God is concerned for the world, or for the earth, the here and now. This is part of God's plan. So God's plan, in order to be faithful to God, to be salt and light, we need to understand that God has a purpose and a plan behind our very saltiness and our very lightness. It's not a random thing for us to, oh, just go be salt and light. He's got a plan for it. You know, it's what we all do when we're going to accomplish a mission and we have a project to do at work and we have something we need to get done around our house. We plan it out. Jesus has a plan. I want to look at a couple of verses just to try to give my um, belief that there's a plan for the earth. So let's just look at a couple. The first one's going to be Ephesians 1, 3-10. If you would turn there. Or write it down and read it later. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished. I want to stop real quick. I want to, I want to, I can't, when I got to this word, I said lavished. What does that mean? Lavish. I looked it up. Sumptuously rich. Elaborate. Luxurious. Sumptuous, costly, expensive, opulent, grand, splendid, rich, fancy, posh. Bestow something in generous or extravagant quantities upon. Synonyms, give freely to, spend generously on, bestow on, heap on, shower with. Brothers and sisters, God has lavished his grace on us. Keep going. Verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, almost there, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. Here we go. Here's this plan. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things in him in heaven and on earth. So the long list of what he has done and will do. And then he tells us why. He tells us that the earth is part of God's plan. So whatever you think happens to it, can't get into all that today, it is currently part of his plan. Think about this. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened to the earth? What did God say when Adam was working the earth that It would provide? Thorns and thistles, right? What did Jesus have on his head when he went to the cross? He had thorns on his head. He took the curse of the entire world with him on the cross. It's not an afterthought to him. The earth is part of his plan. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that's you're sitting here, Jesus is doing that right now. He's holding all things together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Here we go. whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, his plan is to reconcile all things to himself through his death and resurrection. Earth is not a throwaway. It's not an afterthought. The spiritual took on physical to reconcile a people to himself. So please be careful about praying to God and having the mindset of God Lord, please take me away. Just take me away from this earth. Be careful because in John seventeen fifteen, Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Why was Jesus sent into the world? To sanctify us in truth and to be a great light into the world. So I think about, we've got to be careful. So I think about, since I'm making a case that the kingdom is here on earth, John eighteen thirty six, Jesus is talking to Pilate. And Pilate said, are you a king? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Well, he's right, obviously. His kingdom does not find its source in the physical or natural world, but it, it is spiritual and from above. So we have to understand this verse in context of all the other verses that we have looked at to help us understand it. They are clear. Kingdom has arrived, but it's not an earthly Fleshly sword and spear and shield kingdom it 's a spiritual kingdom i 'm not going to go there, but Romans four write it down, go read it. Abraham and his descendants, his descendants by faith in God, inherit what the world Romans eight this is a very very interesting ver- uh, chapter. The earth is groaning until when, according to Romans eight, the earth is groaning until it is set free from bondage to corruption. And to obtain freedom. The earth is waiting for freedom. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom from the glory of the children of God. That's Romans 8, 21. Last verse about this, and then we'll be basically done almost. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom right now and priests to our God, and they shall reign where? On the earth. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Wow. The earth is important, guys. The people around us are important. What we do here and now on the earth is important. It matters to God. So what does all this mean for us? What's the application? Salt. We'll talk about salt a lot more next week, Lord willing. Salt is a preservative to prevent what? In the old, in the time that Jesus wrote this, there were no refrigerators, there were no freezers. They use salt to preserve, to keep things from decaying and rotting. Light, what does light do? I mean, and think about this. When, when Jesus wrote this, there were no light bulbs. There were no electric lighting, right? It was dark when the sun went down. You had candles and lamps, but there was a lot of darkness. But light scatters darkness. Darkness cannot, listen to this, darkness cannot overcome light. You don't turn a light on and see the darkness overtaking the light. Darkness cannot overcome light. We have a purpose. It's to cultivate the earth and it's to take dominion. Psalm 8. Please go read it. We have been given dominion over the works of God's hands. That's what Psalm 8 says. We're to multiply. We're doing a pretty good job of that as a church. Amen. Keep it up. I love it. The only thing is, keep it up. Don't forget, raise them in the what? Nurture, admonition of the Lord. Keep it up. Good job. Our purpose here on earth is to reflect his light. He put us here for a reason. We have a job to do. And our working out of being salt and light has a context, right? The church. Nothing I'm saying here denies the importance of the local church. A lot of our being salt and light occurs within the context of the church. But not all of it. Not what we do in our families. Not what we do in our jobs, in government, etc., so we, us as individuals and our church, are part of a broader story that God is doing. It's the story of Jesus putting everything under his feet and <clears throat> destroying all his enemies before he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. It's 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-four through 26 which is quoting Psalm where, um is where that comes from. So here on earth, part of his plan, salt and light is a meaningful task. So we need a biblical, comprehensive worldview over everything. The, what I want to point out to you, and we'll talk about it more next week, is the verses say you are, if you're a Christian, you are the salt and you are the light. You don't try to be salt and light. You are the salt, if you know Christ, you are the light. It starts with each one of us in our families, at our jobs, at church, in our worship, out in the street. It starts with you and me. We need to start obeying God in our lives and stop exchanging God for idols. We need to live consistent with the Bible in all areas of our lives. That's really what I'm calling us to do. Live consistent with the Bible in all areas of our lives, our home, our church, work, play, Government, education, money, everything. Evangelizing, defending our faith, everything. We need to know our Bibles and do what it says and submit to its authority in all of life. So what happens if we don't? Again, I keep saying this. We'll talk about it more next week. But verse 13, Matthew 5 says, we'll be good for nothing. We'll be trampled under people's feet. That's not a good thing. That doesn't please God. That doesn't preserve anything. That doesn't light anything up anywhere. Being a Christian in name only doesn't mean a thing. So ask God, in closing, how can your life be ordered to be salt and light? Ask God, how will he use you long term? Let's start thinking long term. Because God has a plan. So let's think, how can we be part, how can he use you in that plan? If you're not a Christian, he's not going to use you, but he's going to judge you for your sin against him. Let me plead with you, if you don't know Christ, to turn to him now. Put your faith in his finished work on the cross. Trust in him. Repent of your sins. If you feel guilty for your sins, turn to him in faith and repentance. And it's not by our good works that we're saved. I'm not calling us to good works, to be saved. It's not if you've been baptized. That means nothing if you do not have faith in Christ. It's a faith that causes you to love God and obey God, to love him and obey his word. So we need a sustained long-term vision on how to be the salt and light of the earth. Jesus is the king, make no mistake. He is putting, no matter what is going on right now here, he is putting all things under his feet. And Christian, brother or sister, you got to know this. You are the salt and you are the light. You need to ask God and then think about it yourself. How can you be used to preserve and flavor the world and shine the light of Jesus into a very dark world? And next week we're going to hopefully look at a little more specifics on what that means, what the Bible means when it says salt and light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that anything that I've said this morning is wrong or untruthful or unhelpful for your people, that you would cast it down, that you would destroy it, that we would not remember one second of it, Father, I pray anything that has been in accordance with your word, that you would use it to bless your people, that you would use it to bring yourself glory, that you would use it to bring salt and light to the earth, that you would use it to advance your kingdom, that you would use it to see people come into communion with you, the one true living God. Lord, that we would be encouraged, Lord, is my prayer, that we would be an encouraged people, that you have a plan, and you are the king, and you are the one true God who can, whose plans are never thwarted in the end. Your plans hold, and they are fulfilled. And Matthew is telling us that you are fulfilling, have fulfilled and are fulfilling the promise of promises of God. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Lord, please encourage us through this. Please convict us if we fail to be salt and light. We don't want to be trampled underfoot by men. Lord, forbid that happen. So thank you, Lord, again for this time you've given us to search and seek your will from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.